Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. For those of you who have followed me before, uh, I am now doing NTKR, Not That Kind of Rabbi, on uh, the Canadian Jewish News Podcast site. And I'm happy to be doing that and uh, including the kinds of people that I love to talk to at all times. I guess you could say not that kind of rabbi is kind of like shul without shul. Uh, it, it's a way of talking about things through a spiritual lens, uh, regardless of what they are, uh, and that there are different avenues to get to the same conclusions that we uh, are here together, that there is a unity in what we do. And yes, there's a uniqueness to who we are, but there's also a common thread of spiritual life that we can connect to uh, in our day-to-day. I'm going to, interestingly enough, right now I'm uh, in the middle of writing a book uh, on the climate as a spiritual crisis, because I truly believe that what we're involved in right now is not just science. Thank God for science so that we can verify and test ideas and know truth as opposed to opinion. But it's also a spiritual issue. Uh, Whether or not we hold sacred this world that we are in and each other and everything that lives and, and, and is on this planet. You know, the more I think about it, the more I look at pictures from uh, the James Webb Telescope or the Hubble Telescope, and I think, this is unimaginable. We are in this little blue dot in the middle of nowhere, a trillion stars, a trillion stars, and we are part of that flow. And for me, connecting ourselves back to that and away from the kind of, well, I hate to say it, but kind of a heartless materialism that seems to have become our golden calf, uh, is perhaps our way out of this particular dilemma. There are fellow travelers on this route. Um, Some are clergy, some are not. Uh, But there is a growing movement to include the spiritual in the conversation about the scientific. And one of the people who is leading that movement happens to be my guest today on Not That Kind of Rabbi. His name is Yonatan Nuriel. He was born in the United States. He lives in Jerusalem. And he heads up the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. He's spoken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, the Parliament of World Religions, podcasts, houses of worship. And he is the co-organizer of last December's first ever faith pavilion at a UN climate conference, COP28, that was held in Dubai. So obviously busy, and also the author of uh, the book Eco Bible One and Eco Bible Two, and he joins me now from Jerusalem. Rabbi Nuriel, welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Great to be here with you. It's my pleasure. Um, tell me what drew you to weave the threads of spirit and climate together. Well, I first was exposed to these threads when I was a child. I grew up in California on an acre of land with an organic garden that I gardened with my mother and on uh, next to an old growth oak tree that the First Nation peoples were harvesting the acorns from a few generations before my family got there. And I went to a Jewish summer camp near Yosemite called Camp Tawanga, where I was first exposed to the connection, the relation between Judaism and ecology. 
And then when I came to Israel and I studied in Yeshivot, I, I realized that there's a deep connection between Jewish teachings and ecological sustainability. And I started taking notes and I started writing articles and over time have uh, really made this the center of my work and my 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 devotion. It's interesting. You didn't start off uh, uh, orthodox. You you started off, what would you say, reform? Yeah, I, I grew up in the reform movement. I go into a reform temple, Temple Isaiah. What made you move towards uh, a more devout path? Well, I mean, my, my grandmother, uh, who I was closely connected to, studied Torah every Shabbat with her grandfather in Chicago. Uh, he was a rabbi who came from Vilna. So, so she sort of, she and my mother sort of infused in me uh, a deep, a deep connection to Jewish practice. And when I came to Israel, I, I decided to to take on more traditional uh, Jewish observance. You know, when I think about the idea of environment and spirituality, uh, a lot comes to my mind. What is it that you're finding in the years that you've been running the uh, interface? Uh, organization. What what is it that that comes up for you when you speak to different people from different faiths? Well, I'm finding there's a real commonality uh, among uh, different faith traditions about caring for creation, about having compassion toward other people and other creatures, about living with humility, about having long term thinking. These are principles, values that are apparent in many faith traditions. And I also believe that they are spiritual solutions to the ecological crisis. I mean, you mentioned a minute ago about a heartless materialism that has become our golden calf. And there, there's a certain operating system that's within humanity today that is focused on consumerism and materialism. And I believe the, the climate crisis and the ecological crisis has spiritual roots which are short-term thinking, arrogance, egoism, and, uh, you know, really focusing our pleasure desire on the physical. And so therefore we need the spiritual solutions, which, which come from many religious traditions. And how do you uh, see bringing those into sanctuaries and temples? Because there, there seems to be, you know, there are days where I'll go and listen and a rabbi uh, who I love or respect, will be doing a Devar Torah, a, a sermon, uh, and there's no mention of w the climate crisis. There's no connection to uh, the need to green the world uh, in, in many ways. Do you find that? I mean, do you find that you have to sort of move people towards that focus as opposed to it being organic to the uh, spiritual conversation going on in, in different uh, faith uh, organizations? Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, so so the the books that I've authored, including Eco Bible, which is an ecological commentary on the Torah, so they point out that ecological awareness is organic to the Torah and to the Jewish sages over the millennia, which is why we, we have 700 footnotes from Jewish sources, Maimonides, Rashi, Rabbi Yochanan, etc., and, and yet, amazingly, the average rabbi and also the average pastor or priest or imam or monk or swami 
doesn't speak frequently about ecological awareness and sustainable behavior. And, and to my mind, that is part of the reason why the ecological crisis intensifies each year. And, and it's actually, it's not just a linear intensification. What we're now seeing is sort of an, uh, you know, like a hockey stick, uh, since I'm speaking to a Canadian audience, uh, of, of where, you know, the earth, uh, the average temperature on earth in 2023 was 1.4 degrees Celsius higher than the pre-industrial average. 2024 is predicted by the top U.S. climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen, to be 1.7 degrees more. And so we're actually sort of jumping into, into very risky and dangerous places for humanity and for all, all people. You know, we, we all love God's creation. And out of this love for, for, for creation and, and for our own children and grandchildren, we, we should be motivated to protect it. And yet, amazingly, most clergy really try to sit this one out. They, they think it's, you know, it's something that the, the scientists will deal with or the political leaders. Um, but also amazingly, I, I was just at the UN Climate Conference, COP28, where I co-organized a faith pavilion. And while we did succeed in having 70 sessions and 300 speakers and, and, and dozens of senior religious figures, in some ways we were outgunned by 2,600 fossil fuel lobbyists. And I was even surprised to learn that the official Canadian delegation included fossil fuel lobbyists and, and, and oil executives from Alberta. Well, to say nothing of the fact that the, the man who was uh, chairing the entire COP28 was the oil and gas minister for, for Dubai, and that the next uh, COP29 will also be uh, chaired by someone from the oil and gas industry. So, you know, I, I'm sure it, it, it's hard for you, but what is it that sustains you? What makes you go, this is worth it? Because, I mean, one of the chapters I've been writing is about the inability of people to hear this, that it's so overwhelming that it, it actually makes people kind of freeze up and just go, you know what, uh, I can't, like, I can't put my arms around this existential threat. So what is it that motivates you and keeps you waking up and going once more with feeling? Let's try this again. Well, I, I feel like this is, you know, uh, this is my calling and, and this is why I'm here at this moment in, in history when everything hangs in the balance and we're at a time that our ancestors have been dreaming about for thousands of years that and the, that the earth is messaging to us that we essentially need a spiritual transformation. Um, I, I, I had this realization last year that there is uh, a phenomenon of suppression among human society, that much of human society is suppressing uh, dealing with this. Um, and part of it has to do with sort of the terror of of actually coming to grips with with what is unfolding before our eyes and, and much faster than the scientists had predicted. Uh, you know, people were talking, scientists were talking about 2100. Well, we're now to that in 2024. And, and we're seeing, you know, very, very serious changes happening. Uh, and a deterioration of life, even just yesterday with the, the, the storms in, in North America. So, you know, what keeps me going is is really hope. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talked about how, how hope is is something that we need to, you know, really, really connect to. And, and also Rabbi Nachman 
you know, there's no giving up hope. Uh, I was in Montreal uh, early, about nine months ago, and I, I spoke at the at Shar HaShemayim Synagogue. And at a Shabbat dinner at, at the congregant's home, uh, a young girl came up to me. Uh, she goes to Jewish day school, and actually her parents came up to me with, with their daughter, and, and they asked if I would, I would speak with them. And, and she said how she feels despair. She's maybe, you know, 13, 14 years old. And she said that her science teacher taught her about climate change. And she thinks that there's nothing that we can do. And I said to her, well, did the rabbi at your day school, you know, give a, a lesson about uh, spiritual resilience amidst the climate crisis? Uh, and, and she said, you know, no. Um, and I, I believe that there's a real need within the Jewish community, but within the broader community for religion to get fully on board in addressing this crisis. We, we need religion to address the spiritual roots, as I said, and to shift us from a place of consumerism and materialism to a place of, of spirituality and family and community. And we need religious teachers and clergy and to also help with the trauma and, and the fear and the despair that many people are feeling, especially young people at this moment. Let's talk about that line, that problematic line, man has dominion over nature. That, I don't know how you feel about it, but for me, it is at its root, combined with 500 years ago, combined with Descartes and everything being a mechanical relationship, except for between us, we are the only things that have spirit and soul, and that things are here for our use. Uh, and what has grown from that in the rise of the individual over the collective. So what do we do with that line, man has dominion over nature? So in Eco-Bible, uh, I, I quote several of the Talmudic sages who talk about how the, that verse, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, is in the context of uh, God, God telling people to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. That's the word you're quoting. Urdu is to dominate or have dominion. And the rabbis in the Talmud and the Midrash understand this in the, in the context of, of a verse saying that God created people in the image and likeness of God. And, and one of the Talmudic sages says that if we act in the image and likeness of God, then we have the privilege of, of having dominion. Um, but if not, then we're taken down and the animals dominate us. And, and coronavirus might be an example of that. Now, I, I also think that there's a, there's a deep anthropocentrism in many current uh, you know, religious theologies and religious takes. And if you look at the Jewish tradition, there are many sages that, that promote what, what might be called a theocentrism, that God is at the center. It's not that people are at the center. God is at the center, and we have a responsibility to take care of God's creation. So that's very different. Um, you know, for example, I was even just seeing today that, that there's a, a commentary about how Moses... Uh, wasn't the the God told Aaron to strike the, the the to raise his staff over the Nile River and to bring the plague of the the of the blood and the frogs, 
and and because Moses was saved by the Nile, so he shouldn't be the one to to do bring a plague against it. And I was reading in one of the commentators uh, in a in a modern book um, that was saying that the the river is inanimate, and therefore we can learn how much the more so we should respect people. If the if the, if the midrash says not to oppress, not to harm the river, which is inanimate, then so much the more so that we should not harm people. But I actually saw the anthropocentrism in this very modern Torah commentary that no. It's not that the river is inanimate, and because that's part of the the deeper roots of this crisis is that is that we have this mind, you know, the Western world, the modern mind thinks that the earth is inanimate, and Amitav Ghosh in his book A Nutmeg's Curse really puts his finger on this, that that, that we have this mindset that that we are the only feeling beings on the earth, and the cows and the chickens and the fish that no, they're just instruments. They're just utilitarian uh, means to fulfill our pleasure desire, and we can do whatever we want to God's creation. Well, according to many of the Jewish sages, such a mindset is very far from the truth. And, and, the, and the fact that the earth is buckling and hemorrhaging under, under the abuse that humanity is bringing to the earth today, this is an indication that what we're doing is not appropriate and it is not according to God's will. So there, uh, Jay Michelson wrote a book, Everything is God, God is Everything. And he leans toward the idea that we weren't taught in Hebrew school uh, of uh, non-duality, that you are, and I are not separate, that we are completely intertwined uh, in our lives. And everything that we do affects every so-called thing around us. And that's quite acceptable in Eastern thought and in Jewish renewal thought and in other streams. But, you know, sometimes I've spoken, I remember I spoke to a, a group of rabbis about this idea, and one of them just said, well, that's pantheism, isn't it? I mean, aren't you saying that the, the trees have spirit? And, you know, we don't do that. We're, we're the, the image of God. The rest is a backdrop to God. What do you say about that? Yeah, and you know, I, I when I speak in Orthodox synagogues, sometimes I do hear such a view, and people will come up to me after I speak and and provide such a message. My sense is that there's very little risk of Jews worshiping trees, like happened thousands of years ago with the Asherah trees that were worshipped by ancient Canaanite you know, fertility cults. The real risk today is that we're going to destroy life on earth and, and, and prevent people and all species from living on this planet. That's the real risk. And so, you know, Tubi Shvat is, is coming up now. Today is, is Rosh Chodesh Shvat, the new year of the trees according to Beit Shammai is today. And the question is, how do we relate to trees? Trees are, are dying at, 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 at tremendous rates. What is our relationship to trees? Even the trees in British Columbia and, and, and Alberta, there's a recent article about tremendous deforestation. How are we being stewards of the trees? I, I don't think that there's much of a risk that we're going to come to worship rocks and trees in our times. We've left that. Well, but maybe it's not about worship. Maybe it's about acknowledgement of interconnectivity because, you know... Uh, in 
in one Shachrit service in, in uh, uh, I believe it was Marsha Prager or Arthur Waskow, one of them wrote uh, into the prayer, I breathe life into the trees and the trees breathe life into me. And that that's the way we see the situation we're in now, is that if you don't know that without that tree, you cannot be here, then you are not connected to the web of life and creation and the universe, frankly, uh, and therefore lose a certain sensitivity to what needs to be done. Yeah, I say to that, amen, hallelujah. You know, I, I grew up visiting the the old growth oak trees in Muir Woods near San Francisco and in Yosemite. And God created these amazing trees that are so tall, so old, and that are wise. And I actually have a book here on my shelf called The Hidden Life of Trees, written by a German forester, which shows, I mean, it's, it's when you look at the science of trees and the, the world wood web and all of the communication that takes place and all of the, the altruism, the trees giving sugar to other trees and, and the way that they, you know, are able to live for some, in some cases, thousands of years, the aspen trees, uh, the giant sequoias. I mean, this isn't, this isn't idol worship. This is just appreciating God's creation and appreciating the web of life and the interdependence of all life that God created on this planet. So what do we do now? We're, you're talking about things that are tectonic, enormous. What does a person do? I mean, we sit and, and sort our garbage into plastics and tins and paper and five to 10% of that plastic is going to get recycled. We go into a store, we're not supposed to use plastic bags anymore, but everything on the shelves is in pla wrapped in plastic. It, it, it's, it's comical, if not tragic. Um, what can we do? How can we animate through our own particular view of our spiritual life? How can we animate action that is effective when, as you said, the Canadian delegation had uh, all kinds of oil and gas lobbyists in it. How, how do we do something in our own little way? Or is that really not the answer? So, yeah, individual action is definitely part of the answer. And, and it's also about community action. So, so I would, a few things that I would humbly suggest. One would be to speak to your clergy, if you're involved in a synagogue, about them making the ecological crisis front and center of their preaching and teaching. It shouldn't be something that's only spoken about on Tu Bishvat or maybe once again during Noah, the portion of Noah and the Ark. This is something that needs to be focused on regularly with, with study groups with, as part of the Jewish educational system. Um, so that's one thing. And, and a second is, is to, to be part of a green team at a synagogue. There are, there are actually very few synagogues in Canada that, that I'm aware of that have robust green teams. A green team is a, is a movement within a synagogue to help the synagogue become green through renewable energy, composting, uh, gar gardening, and, and, and green preaching and teaching, etc. So that's the second thing. Um, and then a third thing I would say is also in the realm of personal consumption is really try to live a more sustainable life yourself. Uh, try to embrace a plant-based diet or at least 
be a real reducitarian by reducing the amount of meat, dairy, and eggs and fish that a person consumes. Reduce the amount of plane travel significantly. Uh, these type of, of, of personal actions and obviously voting for political candidates who, who care deeply about these issues, um, these are all things that, that each of us can do at this critical time. One of the things that occurs to me, <clears throat> I had this thought of if you did a blog, like one of yours, that you had a bottle that looked like a bottle of wine and on the front of the label it said gasoline and you were talking about these issues and pouring a little bit more of the gasoline into your, your glass like whiskey on the Shabbat and giving it a little shot and then continuing to talk and <coughs> getting worse and worse. <clears throat> and I, I say that because I believe that there's an addiction issue here. We are addicted to this way of life. We are addicted to the bounty. We live better than the medieval king in a lower middle class home at this point in our existence. And to tell people, you can't have everything, or as Stephen Wright, the comedian, used to say, you can't have everything, where would you put it? So at what point are we able to break this addiction? And what role does humility have in getting there? So the, the, you're asking a, a, a tremendous question. And, you know, I really think you put your finger on it, which is, yes, we have an addiction, which is why each time the, the, the world leaders meet at the UN Climate Conference and they seem to come to an agreement, each year the problem gets worse. And I think that in order to break the addiction, we're going to need to raise our level of spiritual awareness. The, the Zohar, the mystical Jewish book, teaches that the human being has five levels of soul. And within each of that are five levels. So we have a total of 25 levels. And the consumer society today is operating at the lowest level called nefesh shabanefesh. At this level of soul awareness, we're not going to really be able to change because the, you know, the pull of the Tim Ho and all the donuts and the coffee and the big cars and trucks, etc. That's just too much for our soul at a low level. But as we raise our level of spiritual awareness with the help of our religious teachers and our ancient teachings from the Torah, so that's we're then going to be able to see the world differently so that we don't have the same pull to consumer society and materialism as we have today. And that's why it's so essential that that religious teachers get involved in promoting sustainable behavior because we can't just leave this to the politicians and the scientists and the business people to solve this problem because as you said we have an addiction and none of them are able to get us out of this addiction anything that gets between you and the bottle the bottle wins and that uh, that lower soul idea is one that i hadn't thought of and i'm going to have to really think about that and incorporate it into the way I think. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the Interface Center for Sustainable Development. You've been doing it, you founded it, uh, you're the, uh, the man who runs it at this point. Where are you at and how can people engage in it? So I founded the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development almost 14 years ago. We're an Israeli nonprofit organization based in Jerusalem. 
and we've organized 13 interfaith environmental conferences, including one that was held at the foreign, Israeli Foreign Ministry about a year ago. Um, you know, one of the things that we're really thinking about now is how to scale the religion and ecology movement. The, if you look at, you know, the Canadian NGOs that are working on a religion and ecology, including there's one in Toronto called Shoresh. But yeah. the, the number of such organizations is uh, relatively small. And, and if you look globally, there's hundreds of such NGOs, but their annual budgets are tiny. And so part of the work that we're doing now is we're trying to establish a faith and ecology fund in order to scale the religion and ecology movement. It shouldn't be that, you know, the total movement has, let's say, $50 million a year when really we need, you know, several orders of magnitude more than that to, to effectively do this type of work. That's a tall order. It's a tall order, but you know, if if we don't if we don't bring religion to bear, then, you know, then may God help us. And and but there's a midrash that says that God took Adam and showed him all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to them, Everything I created, I created for you. See how beautiful and praiseworthy are my works. Be careful not to destroy or degrade my creation, because if you do, there will be no one after you to repair it. And that that midrash, that from the Jewish tradition from 1500 years ago, is really putting responsibility on us to live sustainably and to take care of God's creation. Tell me the story that you tell about Toni Morrison. So the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison tells a story of a young boy who comes to an elder woman with a bird in his hands. And he says to the woman, can you tell me whether the bird in your hands is alive or dead? And she looks at the boy and she realizes the boy is playing a trick on her. Because if she says the bird is dead, then he will open his hands and the bird will fly away and she'll be wrong. And if she answers that the bird is alive, then the boy will close his hands and crush the bird, and she will also be wrong. He's got her coming and going. So she looks at the boy, and she says to him, I don't know whether the bird in your hands is alive or dead. All I know is that the life of the bird is in your hands. And that's my blessing to us today, that, that through our commitment and by prioritizing the, the ecological spiritual crisis that we are in the midst of, that we will enable the next generation to inherit a thriving, sustainable, and spiritually aware planet. Rabbi, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I wish you nothing but the best in your work and in the resilience that you must have to continue to do it. Thank you so much. Rabbi Yonatan Daryl, he is the head of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, and you can Google that and find his website. There are all kinds of uh, YouTubes that you can watch, and uh, Eco Bible 1 and 2 are uh, co-written by the rabbi with a, uh, another author, and uh, a wonderful read to reanimate uh, the way you see Torah and the way you see the lessons we can learn from it. Thanks for listening to Not That Kind of Rabbi. If you enjoyed your time with us, we'd love for you to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. Our show is produced and edited by Michael Freeman. 
We're part of the CJN Podcast Network. And to support our work with a tax-deductible donation, all you have to do is visit thecjn.ca slash donate. Take care of each other. Bye.